Rise and Shine History Buffs, it's time for another episode of Monday Morning General. Here we give you the play-by-play and analysis on battles from antiquity to the 20th century. I'm Brendan, hanging out with Bjorn. Today, we finish our series on the fall of Constantinople. All right, this is the beginning of the siege. The stage is set. The Ottomans are ready to attack the Byzantine Empire. Yeah, so if you remember from two weeks ago, we had the conversation, Mehmed II, this Turkish leader, he's a young man wanting to make his mark on the world. He really great with logistics. I've been very impressed with his ability to create those roads capable of carrying heavy cannon, bombard cannons going towards the city. Remember that he's built these fortresses on the Bosphorus, ensuring that he's basically choking the city of Constantinople, which in itself is just about the extent of what the, the Byzantine Empire is in the in the mid-1400s. You know, it had been reduced to a couple kilometers outside of the city. So this city is not a, a powerful uh, entity in which it can extend its influence. It's it's far past that time. But still, we've got we've got some pretty spectacular walls. We've got a peninsula with a remember that chain is is across the harbor and and we're ready to go. You know, Metmed and his men have have surrounded the city. They've got their Ottoman fleet on the on the water. They've got their men along the the wall. They are ready to go. And and let's do it, Brendan. Yeah. So early on in the campaign, Mehmed had sent out his forces to capture the strongholds that remained outside the city of Constantinople. And like you said, Bjorn, like those are the last remaining bastions of the Byzantine Empire outside of the city. The fortress of Therapia on the Bosphorus and a small castle at Studius, which is a small village near the Sea of Marmara, were taken within a few days, as was the Prince's Islands in the Sea of Marmara. Mehmed's massive cannons fired on the walls for weeks, but due to their imprecision and extremely slow rate of fire, the Byzantines were able to repair most of the damage after each shot, mitigating the effect on the Ottoman artillery. And we're talking about the Theodosian walls right here, right? It's the, right. the wall. Yeah. Yeah. So these these walls that have been around for between 500 and 1,000 years in some places. But remember, Brendan, these, these cannons, they're massive. Mm-hmm. They're a new technology. They're shooting 600-pound stone balls. These things take take a long time to fire. So the slow rate, remember, part of the civilian the civilians role during this siege is just to fix what's broken. Now the Ottomans goal, knock this wall down. But the civilians, these these Byzantine civilians, their job is just to pick up those stones that that broke through and roll them back into place, put the wall back the way it was. So even though we've got these monstrous cannons, up to 70 in some, in, uh, according to some counts, we're not going to see a whole lot of damage take place. Yeah. <clears throat> and then you talked about that chain. So because the chain across the entrance uh, to the Golden Horn, the Ottoman fleet is unable to enter the harbor of Constantinople, uh, despite them doing some probing attacks. And the main task here for this Ottoman fleet was to prevent any foreign ships from entering the Golden Horn, but they were unsuccessful in doing that. Yeah, so on the 20th of April here, a small flotilla, four Christian ships are going to manage to get in after some heavy fighting to strengthen the morale mostly of the defenders. Because remember, there's about 7,000 individuals guarding the city and many of them are foreigners. And this is mm-hmm. more than anything. It's going to strengthen the resolve of the Christians inside the city. And it's going to be a real embarrassment to the Sultan, you know, Metmed. He is actually going to severely uh, reproach the Admiral, the Admiral in charge of this. this that battle. was a really nice way to say that. Yeah. this wasn't some slap on the wrist so the ottoman admiral at the time during this battle his name was admiral baltoglu and uh, he's going to be injured we think that he was injured in the eye during this skirmish between the four christian ships and this massive embarrassment to the sultan uh, is going to result in the sultan stripping baltoglu of all of his wealth all of his properties He's going to give it to those elite Janissaries, the Ottoman troops. He's going to give them all their wealth. And then he's going to order on top of it that this admiral be whipped 100 times. So a severe reproaching. A severe reproach <laughs> for the embarrassment that occurred when he allowed four Christian ships to make it. This is, this is kind of a big deal. Like we're joking about it, but it's kind of a big deal. The, the, the Ottomans brought a lot of ships, like we talked about last episode, and to let 
four Christian ships get in here and strengthen the morale of the defenders, yeah, that that is uh, hugely embarrassing to the Sultan, and he's going to take care of that. Well, and remember, so this this chain is blocking the harbor. Nothing can get in. And so it's what's that old saying? If you can't go through it, go around it. Yeah. So Mehmed is going to order another road to be constructed. It's going to be a bunch of greased logs. And he's going to have that across across uh, Galata, which is on the north side of the Golden Horn. So if you remember this peninsula, it looks kind of like a triangle with one of those sides of the triangle is being is the land side. The other two are the water side. One, the southern side of the triangle is going to be into the Sea of Marmara. And then on the north side of this triangle, we've got a little kind of a, a river that enters into the Bosphorus, enters into what will become the Mediterranean. So on the north side of this river is where that chain is going across. And what Mehmed is going to do is he's just going to build a road to go around this chain and they're going to go into this uh, this area, the Golden right. Horn area, uh, and they're going to get their ships in there, but they're still... Right, so this is not a road for soldiers or cannon. This is a land road for the Ottoman fleet. Yes. Over a hill, too, right? Yes. Grease logs up over this hill of Galata into the Golden Horn. It's crazy. Yep. Yeah, I mean, desperate times, right? You can't right. get through this chain. Let's go around this chain. The engineering oh. of the Ottomans during this battle is incredible. Oh yeah, the there. If you're going to say one thing about the Ottomans during this campaign is that their preparation was fabulous, their logistics was excellent, and their engineering was was without any without a second. This is the best engineering we'll have seen up to this point. Yeah, so those ships, that road was completed. Those ships started to be dragged across on 22 April, bypassing that chain barrier. This action seriously threatened the flow of supplies from Genoese ships from the not only neutral colony of Para, which is on the north side of the Golden Horn, and it demoralized the Byzantine defenders. Yeah, I would consider that very demoralizing. Oh, yeah. uh, To see, like, all these ships coming, rolling over the top of this hill. (laughs) Well, and you're super excited about this this chain that's stopping them. You're like, oh, yeah, don't worry about it. We got this chain. And then you look tomorrow and it's like, never mind. There's this road and they're dragging their ships. On the night of 28 April, an attempt was made to destroy the Ottoman ships already in the Golden Horn using fire ships. But the Ottomans forced the Christians to retreat with many casualties. Forty Italians escaped their sinking ships and swam to the northern shore. On orders of Mehmed, they were impaled on stakes. In sight of the city's defenders on the seawalls across the Golden Horn. You know what, Brendan? If I can tell you one thing, you should not execute your prisoners because guess what? In retaliation for those 40 Italians being impaled on spikes, the the individuals in Constantinople, these Byzantines, are actually going to bring out their prisoners. Now, they didn't just have 40 prisoners. They had about 260. They're going to bring them out to the walls, and they are going to execute them one by one in front of the Ottomans. Oh, man. God, that's brutal. Yeah, uh, never, never. If I can tell you one thing, just don't execute your opponents. Got it. I'm going to put that in my leader book. There you go. <laughs> so this this failure of their attack on the Ottoman vessels, uh, the defenders are going to be forced to disperse part of their forces to defend the seawall now against uh, along this Golden Horn River. So previously, remember, we had 7,000 defenders along basically two different portions of the wall, but now we have to see them defending that third side of the triangle, which further depletes their their manpower. Before we move on here, I just want to like put another pin in this. Mehmed is a very severe individual. He's he's a young man at this time. He's in his early twenties. His father had just passed, and he's you know he's trying to take up the reins of the Ottoman Empire, this fledgling empire, and you know make this first battle like be that that first feather in his cap. But it seems like he's learned a lot from his father. He is very severe. He's already like we saw with that admiral, a hundred whippings, taking away all of his wealth for a, a minor mistake, and now all this execution. And we're going to see, like, this is foreshadowing later in today's episode, uh, the what's going to happen in Constantinople after the after the fall. But just Mehmed is he's a very severe individual, and he's not, he's not somebody you want to mess with. No. All right. So the Ottoman army had made several frontal assaults on the land wall of Constantinople, 
but they were costly failures. The Janissaries, the elite organization that we've been talking about, lost uh, considerably based on the honor in which they were held. Yeah, this is this is something that's almost sad and embarrassing. Um, they had this kind of honor-bound idea that you don't leave your fallen behind. Mm-hmm. So there's actually a Venetian surgeon. His name was uh, Niccolo Barbaro. Uh, he describes in his diary one such land attack. And, and the Janissaries are attacking this wall. And here's what he says. He says, They found the Turks coming right up under the walls and seeking battle, particularly the Janissaries. And in one or two of them were killed. At once, more Turks came and took away the dead ones, without caring how near they came to the city walls. Our men shot at them with guns and crossbows, aiming at the Turk who was carrying away his dead countrymen, and both of them would fall to the ground dead. And then there came other Turks and took them away, none fearing death, but being willing to let tens of themselves be killed rather than suffer the shame of leaving a single Turkish corpse by the walls. Hmm. So these dudes are just... Hey, I mean, you're you, hurt. You, you never, you need, never leave a brother behind. But you have to suppress the enemy first. That's rule number one. When yep. you're taking fire, you suppress the enemy while your comrade provides self aid to himself. That's the rule. Yeah. Otherwise, this happens. And the, like we said, like the Janissaries are the elite force of the time, and to lose numbers of them because they're trying to buddy aid, it's that's a big loss. So after these inconclusive attacks, the Ottomans sought to break through the walls by constructing tunnels to mine them from mid-May to 25 May. Many of the sappers were miners of Serbian origin sent from Novo Brdo under the command of Zagan Pasha. An engineer named Johann Grant, a German who came with a Genoese contingent, had countermines dug, allowing Byzantine troops to enter the mines and kill the miners. So now we're yeah. talking under underground assaults? Oh yeah, so this is, this is where things get really awesome. So... Yeah. Remember, you can't go through it. You can't go around it. Now we have to go go under under it. it. That's right. So what they would do is they would dig. They would dig these tunnels underneath the walls, and they this was a a siege tactic that went all the way back to castles. Now, what what they are going to do, or what they are going to want to do, is they're going to fill it full of gunpowder at this point in time, try and blow the walls up. That's what the plan is. But even before gunpowder was invented, you would dig underneath your your enemy's lines, underneath their walls, and you would then start a fire uh, destroying all the braces underneath the tunnel. So once you were able to get a large enough area dug out, the goal was to burn the braces and oh, force destroy it the to collapse. So the tunnel would collapse and sure. the walls would then collapse under their own weight because there's nothing keeping them up. Oh, so there's no, no explosives or anything. So back before, when when you're talking about sieges yeah. with castles, there were there was no gunpowder. Yeah, they point. would they would mine undermine you. That's why that's where undermining comes from, right? Oh, you've oh, been undermined. Sure. That's where it comes from. They come down underneath you. They collapse the wall. But in this case, they're just gonna dig underneath, try and collapse the wall. If the wall doesn't collapse, they can always blow it up because now we've got gunpowder. But the only way to stop your enemy's mine is to dig a countermine. You're gonna see this throughout throughout history of sieges. And so we've got this German, Johannes Grant, is going to be in charge of the countermines. Now, the Byzantines are going to be really successful in in intercepting these tunnels. So they intercept the first tunnel on the night of the 16th of May. Subsequent tunnels are going to be interrupted on the 21st, the 23rd, the 25th. They're going to be destroyed with Greek fire and vigorous combat. On 23 May, the Byzantines captured and tortured two Turkish officers who then revealed the locations of all the Turkish tunnels, which were then destroyed. This is a textbook operation here. Now, one thing I want you to think about With here, some nice human intelligence added in there as well. There you go. But one thing I want you to think about is you're digging a countermine. And in order to dig a countermine, you need to know where your opponent's mine is, but you also have to listen because you're listening to where your opponent's scratching with shovels is. If you find that, you can then kind of zero in on the location. But what happens when your tunnel connects with your opponent's tunnel? You begin an underground battle, hand-to-hand pickaxes and shovels. These are things that are going to take place throughout all of history, all the way to World War One. We're going to see underground battles. Vietnam. Forces. Yeah, Vietnam. There you go. With the tunnel rats, underground fighting. It's nothing new, 
but one can only imagine it is absolutely terrifying. Oh, yeah. It just gives me the creeps to think about subterranean warfare. And like, especially in this time, right, there's no lights. So they're seeing with torches. And so this thing is filled with smoke and the light of torches, but it's really dim. Ugh, no thanks. Your, your candle blows out and you oh, are lost. Oh, uh, all right, let's continue. So on 21 May, Mehmed sent an ambassador to Constantinople and offered to lift the siege if they gave him the city. He promised he would allow the emperor and any other inhabitants to leave with their possessions. He would recognize the emperor as governor of the Peloponnese. Lastly, he guaranteed the safety of the population that might choose to remain in the city. Constantine XI only agreed to pay higher tributes to the sultan and recognize the status of of all the conquered castles and lands in the hands of the Turks as Ottoman possessions. The emperor, though, was not willing to leave the city without a fight. He's staying to the it's a dying ship, right? We're going to stay yeah. to the end of the thing. This is this is one of those you really have to weigh in. Like, for example, in history, the Mongols. If the Mongols came up to your city and they said, hey, you better surrender to this or else you're all in trouble. Generally speaking, the Mongols would abide by that. If they gave their word saying, we'll let you go, generally they would. There are other times, though, when, you know, if you say, hey, no way, I'm not going to do it. You were in for a world of hurt when the Mongols got in. This is going to be one of those things. What if you're Constantine, what's going through your mind? Will he honor that? Right. Is he I think that's honor? the first thing. Yeah, I don't know. But Constantine's going to say this. He's going to say, as to surrendering the city to you, it is not for me to decide or for anyone else of its citizens. For all of us have reached the mutual decision to die of our own free will without any regard for our lives. He's he's staying to the end. Have all the citizens of Constantinople said that? That they've reached the mutual, that they have a big council and they all voted unanimously? <laughs> I, I don't know Emperor Constantine, but sure. Uh, it, makes for, it makes for a nice statement. It does make for a nice statement. You know, I don't think that Constantine had an entire council uh, of his, even his officers, maybe. But, you know, Mehmed is going to have one final council where he's going to talk with his senior officers about what to do. Uh, one of his viziers, the veteran Halil Pasha, uh, always one to disapprove of Mehmed's plans to conquer the city. He's now going to admonish him to abandon the siege in the face of recent adversity. So you always in your, in your council of war, you've got that one naysayer, the one who thinks, you know, the sky is falling. So Halil Pasha is going to be the guy who thinks, please, we need to leave. We can't win that kind of a story. Uh, but then there's another individual. His name is going to be uh, Zagan Pasha. He's going to argue Halil Pasha and he's going to insist on an immediate attack. He's going to believe that the Byzantine defense is already weakened sufficiently. Uh, Mehmed is going to plan to overpower the walls by sheer force, started preparations for a final all-out offensive. Uh, Brendan, all-out offensives, that's usually the last-ditch effort. So sieges are going to end in numerous different ways. You bust down the walls. You force a, a collapse. Maybe there's diseases that run rampant. Maybe the the besieged individuals run out of food. The last thing you want to do is send your men into the breach. This is not something you're going to want to do. You're going to take massive casualties. But, you know, hey, maybe there's some impatience here. Maybe he um, maybe he knows something we don't know. But the answer is they're going in. Final assault on the city. Yeah. We have to talk about the things that have failed, right? So they're not successful in any sort of seaward invasion. The cannons have failed to destroy the walls. The mines have failed to destroy the walls. And the Janissaries have also failed to take the walls so far. So you're right. This is this is a last-ditch effort. It feels like it's a little premature. Um, it will end up working. But, yeah, what did what did Medmet think here? It'd be interesting to like think what was going through his head uh, as he was making this decision. And this is probably the biggest decision point probably for Mehmed in this whole in this whole scenario, right, is when do I send everything I got, you know, in one super risky maneuver? Right. I mean, he's had probing assaults, little things here and there, testing the line, seeing where things are at. But one major assault, I mean, this is the roll of the die right here. Right. Imagine if the, if the Byzantines were able to, you know, spoiler alert, they're not going to be able to, but, you know, uh, imagine if they were able to... Imagine if they were able to stop this advance. Right. What What's the answer then? What do you do? So preparations for the final assault began on the evening of 26 May and continued to the next day. 
After the Mehmed Council of War, the Ottomans spent the next 36 hours mobilizing their manpower for the general offensive. Prayer and resting were granted to the soldiers on 28 May before the final assault would be launched. On the Byzantine side, a small Venetian fleet of 12 ships, after having searched the Aegean, reached the capital on 27 May and reported to the emperor that no large Venetian relief fleet was on its way. On 28 May, as the Ottoman army prepared for the final assault, mass religious processions were held in the city. In the evening, a solemn last ceremony of Vespers was held in the Hagia Sophia, in which the emperor with representatives and nobility of both the Latin and Greek churches partook. Uh, Vespers is just a fancy word for night service. (laughs) Up until this point, the Ottomans had fired 5,000 shots from their cannon using 55,000 pounds of gunpowder. Criers roamed the camp to the sound of the blasting horns, rousing the Ghazi. Uh, and the Ghazis is often used as an honorific title given to a Muslim fighter against non-Muslims. Yep, so the, it's, everything, it's everything's said here. So shortly after midnight on Tuesday, 29 May, the offensive begins. So we have a night attack happening here. Yep, yep. We're moving in at night. Um, now things move a little slower at night. It's also a little more dangerous. Um, but you've only got a couple hours until the sun comes up. So right, right. when you're putting your men into position, you don't want them to be seen. But then as soon as the real game starts going, sun's Lights coming start. up, yep. they're going to be able to see. So the Christian church, the Christian troops of the Ottoman Empire attack first, followed by successive waves of the irregular, poorly equipped and trained Azaps, as well as the Anatolian Turkmen Beylik forces who focused on a section of the damaged walls in the northwest part of the city. This section of the walls had been built earlier in the 11th century and were much weaker. The Turkmen mercenaries managed to breach this section of wall and entered the city but they were just as quickly pushed back by the defenders. Finally, the last wave, consisting of elite Janissaries, attacked the city walls. The Genoese general in charge of the defenders on land, Giovanni Giustiani, was grievously wounded during the attack, and his evacuation from the ramparts caused a panic in the ranks of the defenders. Bjorn, it is bad when the leader goes down. I think we've seen this multiple times in episodes so far. When your leader goes down, panic erupts in the forces, and there's not a lot that you can do to quell that in time to stop any sort of maneuver by the enemy. Well, and just the fact that you're going to see panic in the ranks of these soldiers really is a testament to Giovanni Giustiani's actual like military prowess and his reputation. Uh, You know, no one's going to, no one's going to flee if you were just some ragtag, nothing of a, of a general, but Giustiani, remember as soon as he showed up, his reputation was so great that he was placed in charge of the defense of the city walls. Said, hey, oh, Giovanni, you showed up. Nice to see you. You're now in charge of the walls. With Giustiniani's Genoese troops retreating into the city and towards the harbor, Constantine and his men continued to hold their ground against Janissaries. Constantine's men were eventually overwhelmed at several points along the wall. Panic ensued, and a coordinated defense collapsed when Turkish flags were seen flying above the Kirkoporta, a small postern gate that was left open. Janissaries, led by Ulubatil Hassan, pressed forward. Many Greek soldiers ran back home to protect their families. The Venetians retreated to their ships, and a few of the Genoese escaped to Galata, which was on the north side of the Golden Horn, where that greased log road was. Yep. Uh, the rest surrendered or committed suicide by jumping off the city walls. So this panic, this panic is not good, Brendan. It's like you're you're seeing a complete and utter rout of the Christian forces here. You know, they broke in the walls. This is a tough place to rout. There's nowhere to go. Right. But Giustiani is injured severely. His men take flight. Constantine's men on the in the center of the walls. Remember, he's sitting there where the uh, where that river, there's a little creek that goes through. Uh, He's sitting there. His men are going to hold. His men are going to hold a little while, but guess what? An overwhelming force is going to push those men back as well. It's going to turn into a complete and utter rout. Now, I'd, I've never seen a rout. I don't know how to stop a rout, but I can only imagine that it would take a very forceful human being to be able to stop a rout of these panicked individuals. The Greeks run into their houses. The Venetians run into their ships. Everyone's going to save their lives. It's every man for The Greek houses nearest to the walls were the first to suffer from the Ottomans. It is said that Constantine threw aside his purple imperial regalia, led the final charge against the incoming Ottomans, perishing in the ensuing battle in the streets alongside of his soldiers. I really like that. I really like that idea. That picture in my mind is the one that I want to stick with. Uh, At the same time, remember that that historian, the guy, the Venetian Niccolo Barbaro, 
he was the individual who was talking about the Janissaries, how they would just kill, die as they're trying to save their buddies. Uh, he's going to claim in his diary that Constantine's death was a lot less heroic. He's actually going to claim that Constantine hanged himself at the moment when the Turks broke in at the St. Romano Gate. But ultimately, we don't know the answer. I'm going to subscribe to the story that he died in a blaze of glory as he's charging the enemy with one final charge. I like that. I think it's a much more honorable way of going. Uh, So I'm going to stick with that one. Ultimately, he does not survive, which is what we know. So taking control of the city. After the assault, the Ottoman army fanned out along the main thoroughfare of the city, past the great forums and the Church of the Holy Apostles. Mehmed II had sent an advance guard to protect these key buildings. And that's really important to note. So he obviously plans on setting up camp here. This is going to be a city that he wants to take control of because he's planned this out. He says, hey, yeah, you're going to get your your time in the in the city. You're going to get your time to loot and pillage. But more than anything, I want this city for myself. And he sends the he sends in this advance guard to protect like the Hagia Sophia, that that amazing, spectacular cathedral is going to be protected. He's also going to protect other important uh, cities like the Great Forum, Church of the Holy Apostles. All those are going to be protected. So he had planned this out. This man is nothing if he's not a planner and organizer. Remember, Constantinople, like we said in the last episode, is the jewel of the Mediterranean. And it is beautiful. So Mehmed wants this to be his new capital. Like it's going, this is going to be the Ottoman Empire's capital into the rest of the history of the empire. And so he wants to create this beautiful place where he can reside and run his empire from right now before we start talking about you know all the crazy stuff that's going to happen it's important to understand that the ottoman turks culture their military culture is built on the idea that when you capture a city the commander provides you with three days in which you get to loot pillage and do whatever you want in that city. That's their culture. So as soon as the Ottomans break through, these individuals, now remember the remember the guys who were, um, they were the crazy heads. Remember those oh, individuals, yeah, yeah. the untrained, irregular crazy heads? Their entire pay is basically built on what they can grab from the loot that they find it's in com- the city. It's all commission-based. There you go, commission-based <laughs> mercenary. Yeah, that's what those guys are doing. So they Man. fully intend and fully expect to as soon as they get into that city, they get to grab whatever they want. It's first come, first serve. And they're going to be looting. Uh, they're going to loot houses. They're going to loot churches. They're going to steal people. They're going to take slaves. And they're going to do a whole lot of other bad stuff. So here we go. Before we jump into that, I just want to give a quick note here to the Catalans. They maintain the Catalans. The Catalans maintained their position on the section of the wall that the emperor had assigned them. And they had the honor of being the last troops to fall to the Ottomans. So that 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 wraps up the siege and the assault. And now we're going to move into, you know, consolidating gains. So a few civilians managed to escape when the Venetians retreated over to their ships. The Ottomans had already taken the walls of the Golden Horn. The Ottomans were not interested in killing potentially valuable slaves, but rather in the loot they would gain from raiding the city's houses. So they decided to attack the city instead. The Venetian captain ordered his men to break open the gate of the Golden Horn. Having done so, the Venetians left in ships filled with soldiers and refugees. Shortly after the Venetians left, a few Genoese ships and even the Emperor's ship followed them out of the Golden Horn. This fleet narrowly escaped prior to the Ottoman Navy assuming control over the Golden Horn, which was accomplished by midday. The army converged upon the Augustium, the vast square that fronted the great church of the Hagia Sophia, whose bronze gates were barred by a huge throng of civilians inside the building, hoping for divine protection. Yeah, I don't, I don't think they're going to get it. That's not going to happen. So the doors were breached. The troops separated the congregation according to what price they might bring in the slave markets. Ottoman casualties are unknown. They are believed by most historians to be severe due to several unsuccessful Ottoman attacks made during the siege and the final assault. Yeah, based off of historical analysis on how sieges turn out, especially when you are base, you're rushing the city, they're, the idea is that if the Ottomans could not have gotten away with this uh, without taking substantial casualties. So we don't have actual numbers of how many individuals died during this siege, how many died in the assault on the city. It, it will have to be considerable. The Venetian Barbaro observed that blood flowed in the city like rainwater in the gutters after a sudden storm. 
and that bodies of Turks and Christians floated in the sea like melons along a canal. Like so, like you said there, like with the casualty, like for that sort of description, it had to have been immense. And remember, there's only what seven thousand Byzantine soldiers or people that were allied to the Byzantines. So a vast, vast majority of those bodies floating like melons would have had to have been out of it. God, I'm just melons. I can't get the melons out of my mind. All right. So you had already kind of mentioned some of the things that happened uh, after the Ottomans would take the city. So I, I think we need to get into it. And understand to the listeners, understand that these atrocities, I, I tamed it. I tamed the language down. There's a lot of individuals, uh, primary sources, people who wrote, who had witnessed the event, uh, who wrote saying that this was most certainly not good. So according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, Mehmed II permitted an initial period of looting that saw the destruction of many Orthodox churches, but tried to prevent a complete sack of the city. The looting was extremely thorough. On June 2, the Sultan found the city largely deserted and half in ruins. Churches had been desecrated and stripped. Houses were no longer habitable and stores and shops were emptied. He is famously reported to have been moved to tears by this, saying, what a city we have given over to plunder and destruction. That's like, it's your army, Mehmed. Yeah, but he has to do it. Yeah. It's the culture. He, You get three days. Now, remember this uh, this guy, he's a historian, David Nicole. He's going to say uh, that he's going to make a claim. Now, he's a modern historian. Um, not, I mean, he was like the 1950s. Modern historian saying uh, ordinary people were treated better by their Ottoman conquerors than their ancestors had been by crusaders back in 1204. So remember, the the Crusaders sacked the city of Constantinople in 1204. He's going to state that only about 4,000 Greeks died in the siege. Well, according to a Venetian Senate report, 50 Venetian noblemen and over 500 other Venetian civilians died during the siege. He says, don't worry about that. That's only 4,500 people who died during the siege of the Ottomans. Many more died during the Crusades. And also, he says... Don't worry about it. Most of the riches of the city were already looted in 1204, which left only limited loot to the Ottomans. Now, I don't know. I think this is a little disingenuous of a claim, especially when you're saying, oh, the looting wasn't so bad because everything had already been stolen by the Crusaders 250 years prior. And since there were only, you know, 50,000 civilians living in Constantinople at the time of the of the capturing of it, uh, you know, only 4,500 Greeks died. Well, remember, maybe 4,500 civilians died, but many, many thousands more were taken as slaves, were forced into many different uh, terrible atrocities that were that were taken on to them. So I think it's a little disingenuous, and I think it's- I mean, they're both bad, right? They're like, both terrible. They're, they're both bad. So we don't need to like make this claim that, oh, the Ottomans were better. It's like, no, they, they did what armies do, and they loot, or they did what, like, ancient and medieval armies do right they loot they rape they pillage they take what they want and it's bad it's bad across the thing so other sources claim far more brutal and successful pillaging by the ottoman invaders Buren. so unlike what david nicole says other sources claim much more brutal so leonard of chios made accounts of the atrocities that followed the fall of constantinople stated that the ottoman invaders pillaged the city murdered or enslaved tens of thousands of people and raped nuns women and children and Leonard of Chios is much more contemporary than Mr. David Nicole. So take away, I, like we said, both of these things are bad, you know, it, and it happens. So now they're going to, he's going to sell this contemporary uh, individual, Leonard of Chios. He's going to say all the valuables and other booty were taken to their camp. And as many as 60,000 Christians who had been captured, the crosses, which had been placed on the roofs or the walls of churches were torn down and trampled. So during the three days of pillaging, we've kind of already talked about this. The Ottoman invaders captured children, became rich by plundering and imperial palaces, the houses of the Constantinople individuals. Uh, Ottoman officials stated, having completely overcome the enemy, the soldiers began to pillage the city. They enslaved and took silver and gold vessels, precious stones, and all sorts of valuable goods and fabrics from the imperial palace and the houses of the rich. So that was stated by an Ottoman official himself. Um, uh, Nicole Barbaro, remember he's got his diary. He says, all through the day, the Turks made a great slaughter of Christians through the city. And according to Makarios Melisenos, as soon as the Turks were inside the city, 
they began to seize and enslave every person who came their way. All those who tried to offer resistance were put to the sword. In many places, the ground could not be seen, as it was covered by heaps of corpses. They made the people of the city slaves and killed their emperor, and the Ghazis embraced their pretty girls, confirm Ottoman chroniclers. So those are pro-Ottoman sources. Yeah, they're saying, this is what we did, right here. Everywhere there was misfortune, everyone was touched by pain. Mehmed entered the Hagia Sophia, marveling at the sight of the Grand Basilica. Witnessing Agazi wildly hammering at the marble floor, he asked what he was doing. It is for the faith, the Ghazi said. Mehmed cut him down with his kilij, right? Yep. All right. Mehmed cut him down with his kilij, a, a scimitar. Be satisfied with the booty and the captives. The buildings of the city belong to me. During the festivities, and as he had promised his viziers and his other officers, Mehmed had the wretched citizens of Constantinople dragged before them and ordered many of them to be hacked to pieces for the sake of of entertainment. Remember, at the beginning of this, you said Mehmed is, uh, he's no joke. He's hes for real here. Um, and so this is at the end of the three days looting, they had a great celebration. And that is what uh, one of the contemporary authors said, that he had promised his viziers and other officers that the wretched citizens of Constantinople were ordered to be hacked. Some party. <laughs> On the third day of the conquest, Mehmed II ordered all looting to stop and issued a proclamation that all Christians who had avoided capture or who had been ransomed could return to their homes without further molestation, although many had no homes to return to, and many more had been taken captive and not ransomed. Byzantine historian George Francis, an eyewitness to the fall of Constantinople, described the Sultan's actions. On the third day after the fall of our city, the Sultan celebrated his victory with a great joyful triumph. He issued a proclamation. The citizens of all ages who had managed to escape detection were to leave their hiding places throughout the city and come out into the open as they were to remain free and no question would be asked. He further declared the restoration of houses and property to those who had abandoned our city before the siege. If they returned home, they would be treated according to their rank and religion as if nothing had changed. So I would have really appreciated being that person who successfully hid in the basement. Oh, my God. Uh, for three days or something. So Matthew, can't be that many of those people. Oh, yeah. The nice thing to say, Mehmed, but I don't think there's that many people that took him up on his offer. Exactly. So uh, now, if you remember, if you know anything about Istanbul today, uh, there's going to be a transition, right? We're going to see the different names are going to come. So you've got Constantinople during the 1453. It's eventually going to turn into Istanbul. Remember, the Hagia Sophia is no longer uh, an Orthodox Christian uh, church. It's now a mosque. Uh, And so let's talk a little bit about some of the transitions that occurred as the power goes from the Byzantine Empire to now the Ottoman Empire. So Mehmed himself is actually going to knock over and trample on the altar of the Hagia Sophia. He's going to order a muezzin, ascend the pulpit, and sound the Muslim prayer. The Hagia Sophia is going to be converted into a mosque. Um, He is going to let the Greek Orthodox Church remain intact. He's also going to appoint a new patriarch of Constantinople, the individual's name was Genedes Scholarus. Uh, he's going to be made the patriarch of the Orthodox Christian Church. Which was, you know, similar, I think, in level to where the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church was. Yeah, absolutely. So the fall of Constantinople shocked many Europeans, obviously, who viewed it as a catastrophic event for their civilization. Many feared other European Christian kingdoms would suffer the same fate as Constantinople. Pope Pius II strongly advocated for another crusade, while the German Nicolaus of Cusa supported engaging in a dialogue with the Ottomans. But you know what, Bjorn? You know, if you're going to be so shocked by this catastrophic event, uh, Emperor Constantine sent out notes and letters to all of those kings uh, and asked for help, and they all ignored him. So don't tell me that you're shocked here. Like, you knew this was coming. And, and it would probably have been a lot cheaper and easier to protect the city as opposed to attempt another crusade yeah. or to move something, make something happen after the fact. But it looks better for Pope Pius to have a crusade because then he could put his name on that, that he retook the holy city, right? So, okay. Uh, all right. So this is what Pope Pius II said. In the past, we received our wounds in Asia and in Africa, in foreign countries. This time, however, we are being attacked in Europe, in our own land, in our own house. You will protest that the Turks moved from Asia to Greece a long time ago, that the Mongols established themselves in Europe and the Arabs occupied parts of Spain. Having approached through the Straits of Gibraltar, we have never lost a city or a place comparable to Constantinople. Cool. Pope Pius, he, you were also asked to support uh, you know, Emperor Constantine and you neglected to do anything. So, well, cool. Well, to be fair, remember they sent like 
two or three ships full of oh, provision. That's right. <laughs> Thanks for the Wonder Bread, Pope Pius II. It really helped us in our time of need. The Morian, a Peloponnesian fortress of Mistras, where Constantine's brothers Thomas and Demetrius ruled, constantly in conflict with each other, and knowing that Mehmed would eventually invade them as well, held out until 1460, much later than this. So long before the fall of Constantinople, Demetrius had fought for the throne with Thomas, Constantine, and their other brothers, John and Theodore. Thomas escaped to Rome when the Ottomans invaded Morea, while Demetrius expected to rule a puppet state, but instead was imprisoned and remained there for the rest of his life. In Rome, Thomas and his family received some monetary support from the Pope and other Western rulers as Byzantine empires in exile until 1503. In 1461, the independent Byzantine state of Trebizond fell to Mehmed. Uh, Trebizond territory ringed around the Black Sea, so it's a little further north from where Constantinople was. So, Brendan, this is one of those things in history where someone loses their territory and then they continue to have this imaginary, I'm still somebody. So Thomas, the brother of Constantine- This literally happens all the time. Yeah, they always do this. You know, the the government in exile is what they call it. I mean, Poland in World War II had a government in exile. You've got this guy, Thomas, is now going to be the Byzantine emperor in exile. He's going to be in Rome just hanging out saying, oh, yeah, I'm the emperor of Byzantium. Dude, I need you're money. not. You've got nothing. Like, <laughs> Give me money, please. And and let's to be fair, though, in some cases, it was always beneficial for you to have another heir to your opponent's empire. That's always beneficial because then you yeah. would have some credibility if if tomorrow or the next day or 20 years from now, you were able to recapture that territory, you would then have an actual credible individual who's the heir to that throne who you could turn into your puppet. Now, so that was something that they would regularly do. You know, Brendan, if you're the king of, of some country and and you're taken over by your brother or somebody, then you could come to my kingdom and then I would just house you and, you know, you could live in my court and hang out and eat, eat and be merry until I successfully take your territory back kind of for you, but mostly for myself. And then I would just prop you up as my puppet and everyone would be happy. And there was oh. much rejoicing. Yeah. Bjorn, thank you so much. I appreciate <laughs> that, man. Uh, Constantine the 11th died without producing an heir. And had Constantinople not fallen, he likely would have been succeeded by the sons of his deceased elder brother who were taken into the palace service of Mehmed after the fall of Constantinople. The oldest boy, renamed Murad, became a personal favorite of Mehmed and served as Baylor Bay, governor general of Rumele, the Balkans. The younger son, renamed Meshit Pasha, became admiral of the Ottoman fleet and Sanjak Beg, governor of the province of Gallipoli. He eventually served twice as Grand Vizier under Mehmed's son, Bayezid II. So Constantine's nephews get moved into Mehmed's entourage, basically, right? Is what we yeah. just said? Yeah. yeah, that's exactly what it is. So kind of an interesting uh, adoption mm-hmm. of these individuals who do have a claim to the empire, while at the same time, they're just governors and they're completely and utterly loyal from what we can tell to Mehmed. So with the capture of Constantinople, Mehmed II had acquired the future capital of his kingdom. The loss of the city was a crippling blow to Christendom, and it exposed the Christian West to a vigorous and aggressive foe in the East. The Christian reconquest of Constantinople remained a goal in Western Europe for many years after its fall to the Ottoman Empire. Rumors of Constantine XI's survival and subsequent rescue by an angel led many to hope that the city would one day return to Christian hands. You know, you always get these goofy legends. This mythology. Yeah, this mythology. Yeah. So the Pope is going to call for an immediate counterattack in the form of a crusade. But guess what? No European power wished to participate. The Pope resorted to sending a small fleet of 10 ships. This Pope's got small fleets just coming out the out of his big hat. <laughs> and a lot of wonder room. <laughs> <laughs> the short-lived crusade immediately came to an end, and as Western Europe entered into the 16th century, the age of crusading basically came to an end. After the conquest, many Greek scholars fled the city and found refuge in the Latin West, bringing with them knowledge and documents from the Greco-Roman tradition to Italy and other regions that further propelled the Renaissance. So one good effect out of this is the Renaissance, and we get a lot more of that Greek thought entering into European scholarship, which is pretty interesting. So if this battle had not happened, the Renaissance might not have happened. 
And all those documents and thinking would have stayed in the East. Yep, as it as it had been for because remember, many individuals believe that the center of learning was the the Islamic nations during the Middle Ages, and the Ottoman Turks push out these scholars from Constantinople, push them into Western Europe, and they're going to ignite a form of Renaissance. And maybe the Renaissance would have happened in its own right in Europe, but it definitely wouldn't have had that Greco-Roman tradition Mm -hmm. that was still alive and well in Constantinople until they were pushed out. And some Greeks who stayed behind in Constantinople provided many capable advisors to the Ottoman rulers. Uh, So they bring that you know, that Greek thought, you know, Plato and Socrates and all the Aristotle and all those great thinkers and the Stoics bring those into the Ottoman court. And that, you know, becomes part of the Ottoman philosophy. So that's pretty interesting. Uh, a severed head that was claimed to belong to Byzantine Emperor Constantine XI, Paleologos, was found and presented to Mehmed and nailed onto a column. While standing before the head, the Sultan in his speech said, fellow soldiers, This one thing was lacking to make the glory of such a victory complete. Now, at this happy and joyful moment of time, we have the riches of the Greeks, we have won their empire, and their religion is completely extinguished. Our ancestors eagerly desired to achieve this. Rejoice now, since it is your bravery which has won this kingdom for us. Mehmed then ordered the severed head be skinned, stuffed with bran, and sent as a symbol of victory to the governors of Persia and Arabia in order to remind them that it was a Turk who did what for centuries they could not. That's pretty That's pretty Oof. baller right there. Like, I'm going to totally brag here by sending the severed head of the dude that controlled the city that you all couldn't take. Which is interesting. Like, I would have expected this head to go to the Pope or some other Western king, maybe someone in the Balkans or like, you know, like someone West. But no, he sends it to other Muslim people, right? The Persians, yeah. the folks in Arabia. So that that's interesting that there's that, that infighting within the religion, um, and yeah, it just Mehmed is severe. That is a severe thing to do. <laughs> Filled it with bran, basically oatmeal, and sent it away. And it went to the governors of Persia and Arabia. So like it was traveling. That thing had to have been so gross by the time it got to its end location. Well, it's just it's just a bunch of leather by the end. <laughs> <laughs> this news rapidly spread across the Islamic world. In Egypt, good tidings were proclaimed, and Cairo decorated to celebrate this greatest of conquests. The Sharif of Mecca wrote to Mehmed, calling the Sultan the one who has aided Islam and the Muslims, the Sultan of all kings and Sultan. The fact that Constantinople, which was long known for being indomitable in the eyes of all, as the Sharif of Mecca said, had fallen and that the Prophet Muhammad's prophecy came true, shocked the Islamic world and it filled it and filled it with great jubilation and rapture. All right. Now, Brendan, in history and humans in general, they never want a good thing to end, right? So so we have the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire is essentially, it's done. It's over. Now, there was a claim that that the Western Roman Empire, you know, that had fallen in the in the mid in the mid hundreds, right? So we've got the Roman Empire is completely gone on the West and you go to the East and Byzantium is sitting here saying, Oh yeah, remember we're the Eastern Roman empire. It's in our name, the Roman empire. So the Byzantine empire tried to carry on that legacy of being the Romans. And we're going to see individuals attempt to pick up that claim of, Oh, now we are the Roman empire. Mm -hmm. So the fall of Constantinople is going to lead competing factions to lay claim to this title. And like, we're the inheritors of of the imperial mantle. So right. Russians, they're going to claim to the Byzantine heritage. They're going to clash with those of the Ottoman Empire's own claim, right? So Mehmed believes that he is the successor of the Roman Empire because he conquered it. So he's actually going to even declare himself Caesar Irum, which literally means Caesar of Rome. Uh, that is of the Roman Empire, uh, even though today no one calls him Kaiser Irum, they call him the Conqueror, right? They don't call him Caesar of Rome. Mm-hmm. They call him Mehmed II, the Conqueror. Um, you're going to see an individual, his name's Stefan Dusan. He's the Tsar of Serbia. You're going to see even Alexander, the Tsar of Bulgaria. Both of them are going to make that similar claim. Now, remember, Tsar basically means Caesar, right? right. Kaiser means Caesar too. So right. we're going to make these similar claims regarding themselves as legitimate heirs to the Roman Empire. Um, we're going to see a couple other potential claimants. They're going to, individuals in the Republic of Venice are going to dabble with the idea. But then you've also got this one. They put it in their name, 
the Holy Roman Empire. Um, they put it in their name, but remember, the Holy Roman Empire was just this conglomerate. Squabbling of, states in Germany. Exactly. Just yeah. a bunch of squabbling states. Yeah. So not only are we fighting over the Roman Empire, the title of who's in charge of the Roman Empire, but remember, we talked earlier that Constantinople is going to be renamed to Istanbul. Okay. Now, many Ottomans are going to use the Arabic transliteration of the city's name, which is Kustantin. Uh, it can be seen in numerous Ottoman documents. Now, Islambul means full of Islam, or Islambul means find Islam. And so both of these words in Turkish, they're uh, basically a folk uh, etymological adaptation of Istanbul. It's going to be created during the Ottoman conquest of 1453 to express the city's new role as the capital of the Islamic Ottoman Empire. So it first attested shortly after the conquest. So they're going to start calling, remember, full of Is- Islam or find Islam. They're kind of going to, it's going to be like the nickname of the city. It's inventions described by many contemporary writers, including Mehmed himself. Okay. So we've got this nickname, like, you know, we've got the full of Islam city. It's actually called Constantinople. We call it officially Constantinople, but it's got a nickname. Now, the name of Istanbul is thought to derive from the Greek phrase uh, Timbuli, is, Istimbuli, uh, which means to the city. And it's claimed that that is also potentially a, uh, an identification that the Turkish population is going to be using uh, but even before the conquest of the Ottoman Empire. But here's the real kicker that's something that's important to remember. Istanbul is only going to become the official name of the city in 1930. Okay, so it's going to be... After con- the fall of the Ottoman Empire. After the fall of the Ottoman Empire. So the Ottoman Turks had their own nickname for Constantinople or Constantinople. Uh, but remember, it's a nickname full of Islam, only the official name of the city 1930 wow bjorn that was a that was a great story really interesting to see you know the dying gaps of the roman empire here um we get to talk about the ottoman empire uh that's and we'll definitely talk about the ottoman empire in the future so everyone thank you so much for listening to our series on the fall of constantinople bjorn thanks for uh for talking with me this was a lot of fun um everyone please subscribe our next series bjorn what are we talking about in the next one yeah, so we'll give you a little bit of a foreshadowing here. The next episodes are going to be on the Battle of Trenton and the Battle of Princeton. We're going to get a double whammy. Ooh, the American Revolution. Battle All right. of Trenton and Princeton. All right, everyone. That's going to be coming two weeks from now. Stay tuned. MMG out.